Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys, a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very, very special guest, Elle Grenier. She is a young adult novelist who lives in Kelowna, British Columbia. She is the author of the forthcoming novel Bottle Blonde, which is a trans twist on Legally Blonde. I am so excited about it. She's represented by Alexandra Levick at Writer's House. Elle, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here to talk about Little Women with you. It's going to be a great time. Yes. So uh, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? Sure. I mean, you covered a big chunk of it. I am, in fact, a YA author. So I'm from Kelowna, British Columbia, where I live there at the moment. I am also a bookseller by day, which gives a nice little bit of living in both sides now, if I can casually drop your book. And other than that, I spend most of my time hanging out with my three cats and talking about which books are 100% queerer than we are giving them credit for. And on that note, Little Women is new to you. So do you want to tell me a little bit about your relationship with Little Women? Because this is very exciting. Yes. So up until about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, when you reached out to me for this episode, my relationship with Little Women was that I, at some point in my life, auditioned to play Laurie in a community theater production and did not get it, but sort of looked up the musical as a response. So I knew what I was getting into. That is... All I had known until a couple weeks ago. Since then, I have seen the Greta Gerwig movie. I have read the chapter we're going to be discussing, and I have done some Sparks Notesing because I am a former academic and I will always default to Sparks Notes. I have to say, out of all of them, I think this is probably going to be a surprise to some people, not to others. The March sister I most identify with is actually not Lori, but Meg. Okay, wow, you were the first Meg on the show. Say more. Part of it is the former theater kids, you know, everything is a performance. I think there's also, I wish we'd gotten to see a lot more of what Meg was looking into because I think a lot of the class critique is the most prevalent there with this person who wants all these nice things that should be a staple of everybody's life where it averages out and is constantly struggling with the fact that that's not actually accessible to her. And I think there's something in there that's really interesting, especially as a mid 20 year old in 2022 that just kind of hits home in a very real way. Also, I sort of baby bird imprinted on Emma Watson at a young age, and then she played Belle in Beauty and the Beast, and that got 10 times worse, and now I'm here. That makes so much sense. I am so glad to have you here. Again, first Meg on the pod, this is tremendous. I think it's so charming that you tried out for community theater, Lori. You knew, you were on a path. It was all leading you here. It was all leading me to being here with you, talking about Little Women, talking about how incredibly very queer Little Women in this chapter is, and talking about Lori, who is my precious baby angel who deserves the world. Yes, I agree. This might be the first episode of this podcast where I literally cry. My sweet baby girl, Lori. Jesus Christ. So do you want to just summarize for us what happens in chapter five, being neighborly? So in chapter five, being neighborly, Joe is wandering outside and through the window sees Lori looking very sickly and sad and decides that it is Joe's personal responsibility to go in and cheer Lori up and make Lori feel better, which is sort of Joe's first visit into 
the home, into the Lawrence home, and kind of one of the early bridging moments in Lori's friendship with the March sisters, primarily Joe, given that the chapter revolves around Joe and Lori. It really is just Lori and Joe lock eyes and the trans, the trans, the T for T mind meld commences, and it really does not let up. It does not let up, no. Even before they lock eyes, Joe's just walking in the snow past this neighbor's house who she doesn't really, really know that much. And she goes, my trans senses are tingling. Looks up, happens to see a window with just this perfectly sad looking baby angel. And she knows exactly what's going on. Yes, yes, that's pretty much it. As I said to you when we were getting set up, there are episodes of this show where we go deep on themes and talk about the sisters and talk about the history of the moment. And there are chapters where we just talk about how fucking trans everything is. And I think <laughs> I think this is really one of those chapters. This pervades the book. As you dig deeper into the book, I'm sure you will learn the degree to which I am not joking. And the whole book is like this, but oh boy, it's heavy in this one. So in our defense, that is also all Lou Alcott does for the entirety of the chapter, treating this chapter as it was intended. Yes, absolutely. So we begin. Joe clumping through the hall in an unladylike manner, rubber boots, old sack and hood with a broom in one hand and a shovel in the other. Joe has a mischievous twinkle in her eye and says she's going out for exercise. Meg says, two long walks should have been enough. It's cold and dull out and you should stay warm and dry by the fire. Joe my darling says, not being a pussycat, I don't like to doze by the fire. I like adventures and I'm going to go find some. So already just <laughs> an absolute rapscallion. What I think is very sweet about this, she says she's going to go find adventures and she's essentially going out to shovel snow. She says the express purpose of this snow shoveling is so that her darling sister Beth can go out for a walk and have a clean path to walk through with her sick dolls. As much as this is Joe being a really adventurous rapscallion, it's also Joe being a caretaker. And these are the duality of Joe's personality, this very masculine adventurer impulse and this more feminine caretaker impulse, or maybe really, this is really like dad behavior, if you think about it, waking up at the butt crack of dawn to go shovel snow so that your daughter can walk all, you know, it's, it's very that. Oh, it's very much Joe as the patriarch of the March family. In the first chapter, we hear that Mr. March, who is away fighting in the Civil War, has decreed that Joe is to be the man of the house while he is gone. And Joe is taking that duty very seriously. I got the vibe, but I don't know for sure. Is Joe the oldest of the March siblings? No, Meg is. Okay, see, I that's why I was torn. I was like, Joe seems like the patriarch, but Meg seems like the eldest daughter, which, you know, also would make sense. Like, which one of them is actually older here? So it is Meg. Interesting. Yeah. Joe just likes to boss people around, and Meg also likes to boss people around, and they come to loggerheads a fair bit. So Joe is out shoveling the snow, and she happens to look up and this is a beautiful line jaw-dropping breathtakingly beautiful line here she had long wanted to behold these hidden glories and to know the lawrence boy who looked as if he would like to be known hand over heart i have nothing to say here it's just incredibly beautiful you know that internet saying about the mortifying ordeal of being known yes Lori is ready for that mortifying ordeal he wants nothing more. Joe sees a brown face at an upper window. Would just like it noted that Lori's heritage as an Italian in the world of 1860s New England definitely is a factor in his isolation and in his grandfather keeping him away from polite society. I think God, yeah. 
sorry. <laughs> but I think it's also very interesting in the ways that it ties with Lori as a gendered being and perceptions there. I've got the whole thing ready to go on about Lori and Lori's mom. Yes. Um, there's a lot of overlaps there where the line between their connection from a gendered perspective and from an Italian perspective are very much hand in hand. We'll get to this. There's a whole thing later in the chapter and we will get into this. My God. So there's this meeting of the eyes, this tea for tea connection. Lori is looking wistfully down into their garden, specifically where Beth and Amy are snowballing one another. So Lori is looking at these two sisters and just yearning to be a part of it. Yearning. Yearning. So Joe looks up and meets his eyes and says, that boy is suffering for society and fun. His grandpa don't know what's good for him and keeps him shut up all alone. And then Joe thinks he needs a lot of jolly boys to play with. And then she stops and reassesses and says, or somebody young and lively. No, no, what he doesn't need is boys. He needs me, <laughs> whatever I am. <laughs> he needs the March sisters. He needs this. One of the real treasures of reading this book is the use of outmoded language. And so we're then privy to narration that Joe likes to do daring things. And she's always scandalizing Meg by her queer performances. And I'll just take that in the sense that it's meant in 2022. To be fair, <laughs> even if it wasn't intended in the sense that it is in 2022, it works exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a childhood diary entry of Lou Alcott where she is talking about not feeling like a girl. She says, I don't care much for girls things. People think I'm wild and queer. So there's already kind of a nascent sense of that in a gender non-conforming sense. Although obviously it was just a synonym for strange at this point in history, but you certainly do see it popping up in these contexts. And I think you see it here because up to this point, it's not been the proper thing for Joe to be so familiar with Lori. And so what she does now, My Annotated Little Women by John Madison observes that this is an inversion of the damsel in distress locked in a high tower and the gallant rescuer with Joe playing the role of the rescuer, Lori being the princess up in the tower and Joe picking up a snowball and, and sending it headlong toward Lori's window. And oh my God. Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. First of all, I love that Joe's way of rescuing Lori is to just throw snow at the window and be a rascal. I'm <laughs> going to rescue Lori by being a nuisance. And there's something very fun and chaotic about that. And then I love the idea of the inversion of the damsel in distress, but also wonder how much of an inversion it really is and how much of our reliance on the idea of an inversion comes from not wanting to tackle the trope head on, wanting to put almost a buffer there. But also at the same time, the idea of the inversion does let us think about ways the trope is being played with in more specific ways. And I really love what you mentioned about queer performances and the way in which it still carries that sense because I think that is also true for queerness historically. I think the word queer is a great sort of window to look into that. If we think about a lot of queer figures throughout history have been explained away as eccentric in one way or another and strange. And so to some extent, even before queer meant queer, queer as strange and eccentric just meant queer, but we're not going to say it. Yes. Good to touch upon because it helps us recontextualize a history of queerness before the word even meant the word. Yes. Certainly that follows Joe since the very creation of this character in the 1860s to the point where Catherine Hepburn 
probably also a trans man, played Joe in 1933 and really imbued Joe with this trans masculine spirit. Catherine Hepburn's sexuality was also an object of great debate. There's been a lot of scholarship about Lou Alcott specifically. This is absolutely a queer character in every sense of the word, from just strange and not fitting in. And it is that queerness and strangeness that I think allows, it puts this idea in Joe's head in the first place to go cheer up Lori and also allows them to connect because they really are both outsiders. And just with regard to this, again, the trope, the March is put on a play. They're four sisters and Joe writes a half dozen male roles, but really delights in getting to play this swashbuckling male romantic hero and cross dresses and goes by a male name and plays the the heroic rescuer of, of a princess, right? And now from playing that role on stage to actually doing that in real life and standing beneath the tower and calling up to the pretty damsel in distress. It's really about Joe self-actualizing this fairy tale romantic hero. And I, I think it's just lovely and delightful. Joe would find specific delight in portraying and being a swashbuckler because I feel like there's a whole trend going on there with pirates and the pirate aesthetic that is generally just very queer and very trans. Yeah, of course Joe has the pirate era. That just makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Later on in the book, she actually proposes that she and Lori run away and become pirates. I'll just disguise myself as a boy. It'll be great. We'll just be two boys. And <laughs> it would have made great pirates, except for the fact that yes. Lori, Lori might not have made a great pirate. Hey, worst comes to every ship needs someone to just kind of be there and present. And and Lori maybe- could look after the parrots. Yeah. Well, Lori <laughs> could look after the parrots. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He would. So then Lori is, he's not just alone. He is sick. He croaks hoarsely as a raven. He has COVID 19th century, I guess. He's had a horrid cold. He's been shut up a week. Joe recognizes that this is painful. And she says, I'm sorry. And asks, what do you amuse yourself with? He says, nothing. It's dull as tombs up here. Don't you read? Not much. They won't let me. Who won't let him? First of all, I think this is also a sign of maybe Joe being better read than Lori, despite Lori having this really moneyed, elite educational background and Joe being relatively poor, which is interesting. He says that his grandpa reads to him sometimes, but my books don't interest him. And I hate to ask Brooke, my tutor, all the time. And so Joe says, well, we'll have a friend come over and see you. And Lori says, oh, there isn't anyone I'd like to see. Boys make such a row and my head is weak, which... (laughs) I don't think you understand the noise I let out when I first read that line. (laughs) Tell me. Make the noise. It was just a very loud, heavy wheezing. Read the line, gasped, wheezed over a minute, read the line again, and then immediately pulled out my notes and started jotting down every time that something like this was going to happen. Because that was when I realized this was going to be a thing. There's just (laughs) something about Lori sitting there being like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have friends. Boys kind of just are a lot. And the way that Lori says it, where it's very much like, I am not including myself in this for reasons that I am not equipped to process. (laughs) It's the fact that Lori doesn't even say other, just boys as a whole. Yeah. Boys make such a row. It's the sort of thing a dramatic 10-year-old girl writes in her diary when talking about her classmates. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not a child who wants anything to do with boys who thinks they are a great big bother and is up there on the fainting couch like, oh, they just, I can't. They make such a row. My head is weak. It's, it's, 
<laughs> what I think is so special about Little Women, there's this real difficulty when you discuss historical figures you might view as transmasculine, because it can be hard sometimes to distinguish between a woman who was struggling because of patriarchal influences and a woman who is maybe not actually a woman at all. And what I think is yeah. so remarkable about Little Women, what I think makes it very clear that Joe is someone that we can look at as transmasculine is that Joe wants desperately to be a boy, doesn't identify with girls, doesn't enjoy the company of girls. And Lori wants desperately to be a girl, <laughs> doesn't enjoy the company of boys, right? It's, there is this mutual yearning for life on the other side, so to speak, which is really groundbreaking. Lori's identity is not so much a subject of scholarship that I've seen. No, that would track. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> From my reading, it seems like the notion of Joe as a lesbian has gained some traction, especially recently. Joe as transmasculine is kind of bubbling under, and people are just not thinking about Lori within that frame at all. And it's right there, dude. It's right on the surface of the text. I think there's a trend there, though, with especially sort of more historical texts, where there's a tendency, I think, for scholars not to see it as as rich a source of exploration, whether or not a character might be some flavor of transfeminine. Because the thing is, historically speaking, characters' transmasculinity is usually kind of, like you mentioned, something that bubbles under all these other layers of exploration and inquiry that happen first and sort of set groundwork for people to go, okay, now let's talk about the very obvious on the page thing going on here, because other people have explored what they want and built enough of groundwork for this to jump off of. Because looking at things like sexuality and gender performance and class in Concerns to Joe is all about patriarchy regardless. And there's a resistance to looking at Lori in the same way as being about patriarchy. Yeah, I think because Lori is sort of viewed as perhaps correctly in some respects as being the more privileged, he's male, quote unquote, he will get to go to college. But actually, it's a bit more complicated than that, both because of clearly just Lori's reluctance to assimilate with boys and be with boys and enjoy the company of boys, discomfort around boys. And also this fact of his heritage, which we'll get, get into in a bit more detail later, his grandfather is wealthy. His grandfather also disowned his son for marrying an Italian woman. And Lori is Italian and would not have been able to hold certain jobs. His success in the future would be dependent on his marrying a quote unquote, by the standards of the day, a white girl. There's a lot ahead for Lori that's really difficult. And I think that doesn't get discussed. So I'm glad we're discussing it now. This makes complete sense to me. I think yeah. The other question too becomes assimilation as privilege and what happens when you're maybe not willing to go along with that. And I mean, first of all, whether or not assimilation is, but also what happens if you don't assimilate. And I think that also plays really nicely into Lori's health at the start of the chapter, because you get this idea of Lori who's desperately fading away. And then the second that Lori gets to hang out with the marches and Joe specifically is suddenly on the up. And it raises the question, at least to me, would Lori have actually gotten better if it wasn't for the environment provided by the merchants? 
I don't think so. He says himself he's incredibly lonely. And from what we know of his family background, right, his grandfather, again, disowned Lori's father for marrying an Italian woman. Lori's now an orphan. Obviously, obviously, raising Lori was never part of the plan for Grandpa Lawrence. He's not equipped to and is disinterested in actually having an active role in raising this kid. I'm going to cry. No, it's okay. It is very upsetting and frustrating yeah. for a variety of reasons. And poor Lori deserves better and gets better for a while. Yes, gets better in this chapter, certainly. Let's dive into Lori's flourishing. Oh my God. So after boys make such a row and my head is weak, Joe says, isn't there some nice girl who'd read and amuse you? Girls are quiet and like the plain nurse. Not saying I could, but girls generally. Yeah, it's like this entire conversation about gender is entirely hypothetical yeah. and extraneous to them, which I think yeah. in a lot of ways it is. Listen to the next few lines of dialogue here. After Joe says, isn't there some nice girl who'd read to you? Girls are quiet. They like to play nurse. Lori answers, don't know any. You know me, began Joe, then laughed and stopped. And Lori says, so I do. <laughs> Greta Gerwig said something so beautiful, which is that Joe and Lori find one another before they've committed to a gender. And there is that very real forgetting in this moment that they are supposed to be boy and girl. Like they kind of get to meet each other in this neutral space. And it's, it's just exquisite. Their names play into that as well, obviously. I mean, Joe and Lori, who knows? Who knows what those names are referring to, really, which is also very fun. And the fact that they yes. specifically both choose those names as shortened versions of theirs. Lori is Theodore Lawrence, right? That's, that's his full name. He goes by Lori. When he was at boarding school, the other boys teased him by calling him Dora. And so he adopted Lori to kind of get away from that. <laughs> like the face you're making right now. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to make any big sweeping statements, but no, there is uh, just about experiences in general. Like, I don't want to say that there is one typical experiences, but I will say that is a very typical one. It may not be everyone's, but it sure as hell is a common one. Kids on the playground being able to just sniff out the thing that is different about you. It's so lovely for then Lori's femininity to be a really positive thing here. And yeah. Joe took delight in being able to play the rescuer. In fact, the the language here when Joe goes to Lori's house is Joe shouldered her broom and marched into the house. It's this language of being a soldier. It's this military language, soldiering a broom marching into the house, ready to make a difference in this kid's life. Literally the knight with the sword. It is just so... It's perfect. Also, I think yes. there's something to be said about the broom as a sword as kind of this mm -hmm. take on domesticity and Joe's role within the family and also taking the symbol of typically gendered labor as something that's kind of more feminine as the weapon being the sword is just so fun and very, very rich. Joe goes back home, gathers together some gifts for Lori. Amy contributes some geraniums, which in the Victorian language of flowers signified friendship. So nice demure appropriate choice from Amy. Thank you, Amy. Meg has made a blanc mange. A very bland dessert. And yeah. Lori remarks, it looks too pretty to eat. I have some sidebar notes here. What I wrote was, loves flowers and pretty things and extravagant desserts. The thing that made Lori vulnerable to bullying at the boys' school could have been something as simple as saying a flower was pretty or selecting pink ice cream for dessert, something innocent and mundane. It's just this taking pleasure in beauty and aesthetic frilliness. Yeah. And Lori gets to be so open about it here and is not putting on airs for anyone, right? And it plays into that idea, again, of what we're talking about with people being able to sniff it out on the playground as not having to be a bad thing, right? In this case, it's how mm -hmm. kinship and connection is made. Yes. Yeah. 
absolutely 100%. And then Joe gets to work neatening up Lori's room because he's been having some trouble keeping it clean. He's he's just very depressed, quite frankly. Yeah. When a person is in a depressive episode, the room can get cluttered and messy. Someone coming over and tidying up your living space. Joe, acts of service, March here. This is her love language. It's like aggressive <laughs> care. Like I am yes. here to provide you with what I know you need. And if you don't yes. need it right now, you will know when I am done. The earnestness with which Joe takes care of people. So Joe is sort of bustling around, whisking things into place. Lori watches her in respectful silence and says gratefully, how kind you are. Yes, that's what it wanted. Now, please take the big chair and let me do something to amuse my company. Please let me reciprocate. Let me show you that I can do something for you. You've done so much for me already that I feel guilty and I have and to earn this. I have to do something. Right. And even beyond that, all right, you've done all the kind of labor in the house. Now let me be a host. Let me host you. Yeah. Which is again, yeah, super feminine role. Let me amuse you. Let me be the hostess here. The big chair too, which in a typical household probably would have been reserved for the father figure. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the big chair. Take yeah. the big knight's patriarch chair and let me be your hostess. Yes. The fun thing is how much of this is their default and how much of this is them kind of playing at these roles too and playing at being grown-ups for each other because they are just yeah. young still. This phase of adolescence, it was sort of still being defined at this point. There was sort of a really rocky period where you were essentially just supposed to be a little adult. This was around the age when girls, not boys, but girls would be getting married, certainly around Joe's age, 15. So already you're supposed to have these domestic skills in place, already you're supposed to be these things to one another. And it's nice that Joe and Lori can have this sort of non-romantic, non-sexual relating to one another play at this point in their lives. And then my heart is breaking. Like I said, this may be the first episode where I cry. So Lori starts asking all these questions about Joe's sisters because Lori's been up in his tower looking down, watching them play. He's like, okay, Beth is the rosy one. And uh, the pretty one is Meg, which is so... You just know (laughs) Amy never found out Lori said that. (laughs) (laughs) You just know Amy never found out. It was never mentioned ever. The pretty one is Meg, and the curly-haired one is Amy, I believe. And it's just <laughs> taking notes. What I think is remarkable, too, about this very nonchalant calling Meg the pretty one is Laurie is already placing his love and affection for Joe in a category entirely removed from feminine beauty, right? What he mm-hmm. values about Joe is not, she's a beautiful girl. I can appreciate that about other girls, but you, this is not a traditional boy-girl attraction here. It sure is not. It sure isn't. Let's see if I can get through this without crying. So Joe has kind of called him out on paying really close attention <laughs> to the March sisters. And it's like, how do you know all our names and hobbies? What's going on? And Lori says, why, you see, I often hear you calling to one another. And when I'm alone up here, I can't help looking over at your house. You always seem to be having such good times. I beg your pardon for being so rude, but sometimes you forget to put down the curtain at the window where the flowers are. And when the lamps are lighted, it's like looking at a picture to see the fire and you all around the table with your mother. Her face is right opposite and it looks so sweet behind the flowers. I I can't help watching it. I haven't got any mother, you know. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to cry in this episode because I'm only in on the one episode and I will not be... (laughs) the guest who cries. (laughs) We are barely keeping it together right now. It's just heartbreaking. He sort of turns his face away so Joe won't see him cry. 
Because right? God forbid Lori's allowed to cry ever, God forbid. Which again, is, is something that like Greta Gerwig really taps into. The scene where Lori comes home with the girls for the first time and he addresses her as Mrs. March and she says, oh, just call me Marmy. You can see what that means to Lori. It's a sense of family. And especially again, mm-hmm. considering that his only family is the reason he has no other family. Yeah is a very complicated thing for Laurie to process, I think. Yeah. And specifically, no mother, right? He's in this all-male household. He has Mr. Lawrence, he has his tutor, and he's looking at Marmy and these four girls with the fire lit and just yearning to be with them. Please put me in the other gender, please. Right? It makes me even sadder knowing the conversations that were had about whether or not Lori should be let into the group in the first mm-hmm. place because the troop is in this entire space of gendered play yes and they're sitting there like actually though we don't necessarily want the uh, filthy amabs is kind of the vibe <laughs> of them talking about Lori or specifically Amy talking about Lori I will not get too far into shit talking Amy March because I know there are people who love her and I want to respect that but that was the moment where I knew I was going to fight her <laughs> Lori's craving that space and that space exists and they're still barely able to get in. That scene is, it's a virtuoso performance from Tim Chalamet in that moment. The objection is Lori is a real boy. He can't be part of a club where we cross-dress as boys. And Timothy Chalamet comes out, does this gruff voice man drag and can't keep it up. His voice breaks and it's like, yes, you belong here. I don't even know if Jose Chalamet knows what he's doing in that scene to that extent, but dear God. What you said about we don't want the filthy AMABs, it reminds me of Danny Lavery's joke that's like, this is such a trans-inclusive and welcoming space. I, as a trans man, feel really accepted and welcome here. Where are all the trans women? <laughs> it's very like, it's very that. <laughs> very that. Lori does get into the space and does get yes. to sort of the fifth March sister. So it all works out fine. Yes. It just makes that moment even sadder when you can see Lori craving for those sisters. Lori doesn't yearn a lot for his father, interestingly no. enough. It's missing his mother specifically. And that, and Joe gets this immediately. The vocabulary here. The line is, she looks at Lori, he's sick and lonely, and feeling how rich she was in home, love, and happiness. The notion that there are types of wealth and privilege beyond simply financial privilege. And Lori, who has all this material wealth, really, really is missing the basic things that make life meaningful. Her brown face was very friendly. So this is another, they are both described here in this chapter as being brown. So that's another a point of commonality for them. Her sharp voice is unusually gentle, as she said, we'll never draw that curtain anymore. And I give you leave to look at us as much as you like. I just wish though, instead of peeping, you'd come over and see us. Mother is so splendid, she'd do you heaps of good. And Beth would sing to you and Amy would dance. Meg and I would make you laugh over our funny stage plays. We'd have jolly times and Lori is brightening more and more. Brightening is the verb there. Lori is coming to life, opening like that flower to sun moment. It is just so exquisite. The recognition, the being welcome. Being wanted in the space. And the fact that Joe sets options for Lori to be present in whatever terms are best for Lori. Like, I will leave the curtain open. You can keep watching. You can also come. Yes, yeah. Not trying to force any kind of like, this is how it's going to go. Just take whatever you need. 
it's beautiful because Lori has also been so generous with the marches too. That beautiful Christmas Day breakfast was entirely Lori's idea. Lori put all of that together. And that was this material extravagance. And then Joe is repaying that tenfold with interpersonal love and connection and intimacy. It's really a relationship of equal exchange. Oh, Lord. So getting into gender again. We, we never left. Let's be real. Lori asks Joe, do you like your school? And Joe answers, don't go to school. I'm a businessman. <laughs> like, okay, I'm a businessman. Girl, I mean. Oh, right. I'm a girl, I guess. Like, oh yeah, I guess. Um, right. We, we're talking about the real world now, not this like space that we're in. There's something to be said about older books and the way they can be so very on the nose because it's not going to be taken at face value. Yes. Which means that then when you are open to taking it at face value, it just becomes fantastic. Obviously, they didn't have vocabulary like transgender and lesbian, but in a way that makes them more free to kind of speak very frankly about the reality of the situation. Another big, soul deep book for me is uh, Les Miserables, and especially the character of Enjolras, who is about as queer as it gets for a character who existed before any of those words existed. There was a whole period of my life where I would just wake up, log in, and fight people online about Enjolras being gay all day long. That, that, that tracks for you. Yeah. And at one point, I had a t-shirt made with the French translation of the line, he was not aware that there was a thing on earth called woman. It's mm-hmm. pretty explicit. That's what's happening here as well. It could kind of be understood as just a quirk of Lou. Of course, Lou is masculine. Of course, Lou should have been born a boy. We're all going to honor that and recognize that and refer to Lou as a brother and a son and a father. When asked to write a book for girls, Lou says, I never liked girls or knew many except my sisters and goes and writes this. Which then becomes <laughs> the seminal novel in so many yeah. ways. But is also, again, deeply rooted in that sort of genderness of it all. And specifically in in the experience of Lou being in a household full of women, loving her sisters and feeling at home there and not so much in the outside world. Mm -hmm. And the real and extreme difficulty of having this safe space of the home, Joe or Lou could really be themselves. And that kind of breaking apart as a person dies, a person goes abroad, a person gets married, and you're kind of left and expected to leave the nest. And the outside world is quite a bit more hostile to the fact of who you are than parents or your siblings. Her 50s, I believe. And one of the ways that Lou really was very close friendships with a number of boys, sometimes her age, sometimes actually sometimes considerably younger. When she was a a middle-aged woman touring Europe, she became friends with a a Polish 20-year-old named Ladislas Wisniewski. Don't, I, I can't, I'm not Polish. Please don't send me letters, but... And would have these very deep relationships with young men. There is a journal entry that will not leave my head where she's a much older woman, well into, she's staying at a hotel that happens to look opposite a boys' school. And she sees the boys playing outside at recess and writes about just yearning to join them. I feel like that makes a lot of sense for Lou Alcott, though. Again, I'm assuming there's a certain level of auto, not autobiographicalness, but commonality in their family situations. Yes. Joe the entire time is being the older brother. So it makes sense. Yes. 
to continue to aspire to be the older brother. And so it's not surprised that Lou Alcott would have had a lot of friendships with younger men because they were little brothers. Yes, yeah. And that's something that Lou never got in her home, getting to have a brother, really. And I think that's even this relationship with Lori is about, I mean, obviously, Lori is a girl. It's what brings Joe into the relationship. And then they realize very quickly that that's not what's going on. But it's the er early appeal. There's a, a bit of direction in the Greta Gerwig screenplay in the scene where Joe and Lori are dancing. She says, sometimes Joe is the man and sometimes the woman. Same with Lori. They're almost kind of literally just going around and around and changing these roles. It's really lovely to see. As far as just other people being able to recognize it, Lori's grandfather says to Joe, you've got your grandfather's spirit if you haven't his face. Which, <laughs> holy shit, again, you remind me of your grandfather. You may not have a male face or body, but you certainly have your grandfather's male spirit. It's that thing of being more than half persuaded that you are by some freak of nature, a man's soul in a woman's body who can't relate. The interesting there too, is that Laurie is constantly compared back to his mother. Mm-hmm. And then there's that Ida dimension that Joe is being praised by Laurie's grandfather for reminding him of her grandfather. Whereas mm-hmm. Laurie is very actively not being praised for reminding him of yes. his mother got this parallel that they both remind him of relatives in tricky gendered ways. Yep. Yep. was a pro and one of those is a con. Yeah. Shortly after Mr. Lawrence praises Joe for having her grandfather's spirit, he pulls Lori's hair and says, uh, come to your tea, sir, and behave like a gentleman. Mm-hmm. In context, that line to be, he's not necessarily chiding him for inappropriately gendered behavior. It's like Lori's just kind of being a, a bit of a rascal. he's running down the stairs, he's making a racket. But in a real sense, childhood in Little Women is also positioned as the opposite of adult gender. So once again, this is Laurie is failing to do gender right. He's supposed to be a a man and he's he's not doing it and <laughs> and it's a problem and then Mr. Lawrence again with this validation of Joe he likes Joe this is Mr. Lawrence thinking for her odd blunt way suited him and she seemed to understand the boy almost as well as if she had been one <laughs> <laughs> there are times in this book where like Lou Alcott is just hitting you over the head with a baseball bat <laughs> I thought it could not possibly get more like blunt and obvious. And then we got that line. We talked about this in the very first episode of this podcast, but I think in a very meaningful sense, Lou was out in the 1800s. Lou knew who she was and was extremely open about it. And that comes through in this text to the degree that a person could be out before any of this vocabulary was invented. Lou was out and Joe is out in meaningful ways. I think that Joe has transitioned, has made choices to bring the outer presentation of her gender in line with the inner understanding of her gender and other people can see that and recognize it and it's really really special it is and along those lines Lori gets a more understated but I think equally just powerfully feminine moment do you L do you want to read to me the line from Lori took her if you have the book in front of you do you want to read like the whole the whole little paragraph from Lori took her away to the conservatory Lori took her away to the conservatory which had been lighted for her benefit It seemed quite fairy-like to Joe as she went up and down the walks, enjoying the blooming walls on either side, the soft light, the damp, sweet air, and the wonderful vines and trees that hung above her. While her new friend cut the finest flowers till his hands were full, then he tied them up, saying, with the happy look Joe liked to see, please give these to your mother and tell her I like the medicine she sent me very much. 
So I think we can all agree this is extremely butch masculine behavior. This is being jelly round. Yeah, every single man is a fairy princess. Yeah, like That's this is also as far as you know, hashtag justice for Lori. We have not gotten I, I need to see full on flower boy Lori in yeah, her elements. Every scene with the flower crown. It's like a joke in the Greta Gerwig version. Like John Brooke is like, there's a greenhouse, and everyone kind of looks at him weird. I really would love to see Lori walking into the greenhouse. You know, you know, this was the Victorian era. You know, Lori is spelling and putting together paragraphs and like lacing these flowers with meaning to give to Joe's mother. As, again, it's that desperate thing of wanting to be accepted, wanting to give a gift. And, you know, if Joe is Joe, act of service March. Lori's love language is, is evidently gifts. Blatantly. Yes. Yeah. These flowers. He cuts the flowers, the finest flowers, till his hands are full. These are obviously expensive flowers for one thing, but they're also special. And it's this fairy tale, lush, feminine atmosphere that Lori is clearly thriving in and at home in and adept at, which is really lovely to see. So special and wonderful. Yeah. And there's also a weird thing going on with the pronouns of it and how like sparingly they're used that I forget who they're referring to for most of the paragraph. I saw a tweet recently where someone was saying you know when i read little women as a kid i just i thought Lori was a girl you can you can almost be forgiven <laughs> right yeah. reading a passage like this and thinking i never know how hard to be on mr lawrence obviously he's at the beginning of his journey again cracking down on anything feminine or girly from Lori. the grandfather says that will do that will do young lady addressing joe too many sugar plums are not good for him his music isn't bad lori has been playing the piano but i hope he will do as well in more important things. <laughs> Piano is a very womanly feminine habit, like making flower arrangements that convey meaning. And not so, more is something that's associated with Lori's mother. Yes. Yeah. Because the very, we, well, now we can get into it because we're pretty much there. Yes. Yeah. Joe asks shortly after Mr. Lawrence is like, well, John Brooke will escort you home. Joe says, I ain't a young lady. <laughs> I'm not a woman, thanks, and disappears. But right after that, thinking again about the way Mr. Lawrence came down on Lori for saying his music isn't bad, but I hope he will do as well in more important things. Joe asks, Mother, why didn't Mr. Lawrence like to have Lori play? And we get this story of Lori's father married this Italian lady, a musician, which displeased the old man, who's very proud for reasons of mid 19th century anti Italian bigotry for one. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into this in next week's episode. But at that point, the worst of the attacks on Italian Americans and on Italian immigrants were sort of still to come. At this point, it would have been more that the Lawrences were part of this community known as the Boston Brahmins, who are a very elite clubby group. There was a lot of intermarriage, cousin marriage. And so marrying not only outside of that community, but marrying an Italian who would not have been considered white was surely enough to get this guy to sell. Lori was born in Italy. He is an immigrant. Lori comes naturally by his love of music for he is like his mother. Mm -hmm. it's, he's like his mother, right? And I dare say his grandfather fears that he may want to be a musician. Musician is doing a lot of work there. <laughs> in the early 2000s, going into 2010 even a bit, you wouldn't say you were worried that somebody was going to end up gay. You'd say they were worried they would go into show business. He's terribly worried that his grandfather fears he may want to be a musician. His skill reminds him of the woman he did not like. So there's some plain 19th century racism going on here. 
Oh, yeah. It's incredibly upsetting. Lori, who is in the context of this, is functionally biracial. We see Mr. Lawrence trying to really stamp out any kind of Italian cultural influence and also anything that connects him to his mother, anything that reminds him of his mother. And no wonder Lori yearns so desperately for a mother. He, he probably isn't allowed to express that any other way. Absolutely not. The mother is basically being wiped out of the scene. Joe says, how silly. Let him be a musician if he wants to and not plague his life out sending him to college when he hates to go. We know that Joe wants nothing more than to go to college and is also very able to see Lori doesn't want that life. Lori yeah. wants to be a musician and that's fine. And, and why? And it's so simple. And then Meg chimes in saying Italians are nice. Progressive for the era. Not to double down on the Amy bashing, but it is very telling that in their adult relationship and their marriage, there's a lot of complexity going on about Lori's musical pursuits. You know, I go back to the opera mm -hmm. that Lori wants to write and Amy completely dismissing that. And in some ways, Lori married his grandfather, which is terrible. <sighs> Amy and Lori, uh... <laughs> I think one of the reasons Little Women is adapted so much is it is an inherently flawed text. The conclusion does not make a lot of sense. It seems to contradict a lot of what the book is saying. Greta does her best with this nonlinear timeline to really put in the screen time and establish that relationship because a lot of the other films follow the course of the book so that Amy and Laurie is happening very late in the game without any kind of preamble. And it doesn't always land. So I think, I, I do think Greta did her best, but I think, yeah, in a very real sense, it is a kind of settling. It's clearly not what Lori wanted aside from wanting to be part of the March family and knowing for his own self-preservation that he can't just go off and go to Italy and marry a Sicilian woman. If he wants to continue to have any kind of livelihood in New England, he needs to marry a wasp, a Boston Brahmin, a white woman. So there's a lot of stuff at play there. There's a lot going on that yeah. I'm not going to dive too much into because I do not want the entire Amy community coming for me, which they yeah. already made. <laughs> I don't think it's so much Amy's fault as a character. It's just what she represents, right? Meg is already at the end of this chapter trying to wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Ooh, Joe, I bet this Lori boy likes you. And Joe is shutting that down. I won't have mm -hmm. any sentimental stuff about compliments and such rubbish. Lori's a nice boy and I like We'll all be good to him because he hasn't got any mother and he may come over and see us. Marmy says, yes, Joe, your little friend is very welcome. And I hope Meg will remember that children should be children as long as they can. Marmy is on Joe's what team here. What a line, especially within the context yeah. of Little Women, where that seems to really be one of the driving motives. Let children be children as long as they can. Let children be children also means let children exist in this less gendered space. Which is funny. Right. It's the opposite of what's going on right now with the idea of let children be children, right? <laughs> in Little Women, let children be children means don't push any cis and hat agenda onto them right now. Sometimes reading this book actually makes me aware of how much we've regressed in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. And it says a lot that Little Women was originally written in the two halves, right? So there was Little Women and then the second half was published in the UK at one point as Good Wives before they were pushed into one volume. It's heartbreaking that this was the inevitability. Lou had her own ideas. She said Jo should have been a free spinster and paddled her own canoe. In the interim between the publication of the two books, she got a lot of fan mail from girls saying, please, Joe and Lori need to get together. Please make them get married. In the Greta Gerwig film, it's very bluntly portrayed as Mr. Dashwood, the editor, saying, well, she's got to marry some. It's this editorial pressure coming from top down. I, in my archival research, did not find 
any such letter. It was all fan mail coming from girls. And in a very real sense, Lou did not allow Joe to marry Lori to, I don't know, get one over on these girls, these child girl readers, maybe because she just wanted them to want more for themselves. I don't know. It might also be pettiness and spite, and I respect that. You are writing this beautiful exploration of all these different relationships and reports that are happening. And the audience that has been deemed your target audience keeps saying, that's all lovely, but we need these two in this very specific way together in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense for them, but makes sense for the script. Yes. Honestly, as a writer, I would also probably be like, actually, no, um, I'm going to do something completely not that just because that's not how it is. And if your demands are forcing me to make some changes to the script of this, there are going to be changes you don't like either. Yes, yes, yeah. And I think Joe and Lori's relationship symbolize something really important about non-sexual, non-romantic friendships between men and women or access to friendship and kinship with boys. This is a, a recurring thing in Lou's other work is just wanting friendship and companionship with boys and men, not to be pushed into a romantic relationship. And it's funny because in the sequels in Little Men and Joe's Boys, essentially that's where they wind up. Joe and Lori live on a big commune with their respective spouses and are best friends and hang out every day (laughs) as they should. It's a really radical vision, certainly for the day and for these characters and even by today's standards. I think it does track that Lori does develop romantic feelings for Joe and is really heartbroken. The level on which Amy and Lori works for me is the level on which it's super femme for femme. Yeah. There's just a really unapologetic love of femininity on Amy's part. And Lori just kind of gets to worship that and bask in that and be part of that world, which is something that Lori wouldn't have gotten with Joe. No, that is the part that I was really hoping to see more of. And the part that Mm. saddens me is the way in which it's sort of a one-way femme-for-femme thing. Amy's Mm -hmm. constantly trying to rectify that and readjust the relationship. Yeah. I'm not going to keep shit-talking Amy. I'm not going to keep shit-talking Amy. Amy exists and she is (laughs) trying to do good and the ways that that means to her. And she has a lot of extra outside pressures put on her. In a way, because she is the most, you know, maybe her hyper femininity makes her a kind of target as well. It does, for sure. Yeah. After Meg marries for love and Joe has no plans to get married whatsoever. I am not acknowledging the existence of Bear. I'm not doing it. I won't do it. And Beth dies. So then Amy is kind of the family's last hope for any kind of economic prosperity. And there's a real chance that she could have just married for wealth and not love and gone off and been with Fred Vaughn. And that's sad to contemplate, quite frankly. The real life May Alcott was a very fascinating, incredibly talented, compelling figure. She was a tremendous artist in her own right. She had this whirlwind romance with a Swedish man, I believe, died in childbirth. It was very sad. So was also constrained by womanhood in many ways. So we don't want to rag on Amy. I never want to rag on Amy, just Amy's relationship with Lori. As much as we were clutching our faces and crying reading this chapter, right? It's bittersweet because both of these characters, both Joe and Lori, are kind of hurtling toward this inevitable gendering that they can't quite escape from. Joe is going to have to be somebody's wife and Lori is going to have to be somebody's husband and they won't quite get to flourish in the ways that they should. And it's sad. It's very sad. That's part of what makes me wonder what the motives were in 
Lori's feelings for Joe, because obviously there is a level of connection, but also how much of that is proposing a marriage where they can each be somebody's wife and husband and yet still have their space to kind of play within that. Yeah. And I think it says a lot that Joe does kind of reconsider and thinks, wait, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe, maybe Lori is the right thing after all. I can say though that Bear was not the right choice. (laughs) (laughs) How much I can say. There was not the right choices and the right choice simply did not exist. Correct. HRT is off in the future. (laughs) Joe, Lori, I'm so sorry. Passed you by. The concept of a married man and a married woman who are not married to one another could be extremely important people in each other's lives was also quite unusual. You can't make good choices if you don't have good choices. Exactly. Tragedy of Little Women is that was written in the 19th century. Well, we're still struggling with many of the same same stuff today is the difficulty, right? But would it have been different if it was set in 2022? Would it really? Probably not. One, one thing that I was thinking of, as we're talking about marrying for love versus marrying to assimilate, we don't learn a whole ton about Lori's father. A lot of Lori's yearning is for his mother. But what we do know about Lori's father is that he was willing to throw away his inheritance and marry for love, not just marry for love, but marry outside of the acceptable racial politics of the day mm-hmm. and risk it all. And I think Lori is coming from that legacy. And I think that's really really, really beautiful. I think that's part of Lori's DNA. And it's something that as his relationship with Joe flourishes and he brightens up, I think that comes out and there's that romantic spirit running through him. And I I think that's really lovely. It is. I think there's a lot to be said about Lori's father and not much to base it in because we don't know very much. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts? Because we are at the end of the chapter. Yeah, I think we, I was worried for a second that we hadn't reached the end of the chapter and that we'd gone on a huge tangent, but we, we made it. We found our way there. It really does circulate around the way that we get to see the space start to flourish between Lori and Joe. That takes on so many dimensions. And we focused in obviously a lot on the gender dimensions of it, but there is a lot going on outside of that, right? There's kind of the familial aspect. There's the class aspect. There's the racial aspect. And I think all of those build that space and contribute to what makes that space so sacred and so integral really to the heart of Little Women that the chapter becomes vital in that way because we need that insight. We need that grounding. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so grateful that this book exists. I'm grateful that it has existed for hundreds of years and that we're still able to mine brand new revelations from it. I think that's really special. And I think, I hope that it flourishes as a trans text so that kids who need it can find it because God knows they need it right now. Just put that information out there and be like, actually, if you're looking for like a trans text, you could consider reading Little Women and then you might find something in it. It's all right there. You know, as much as it's important to, you know, to be able to see queer couples and trans people highly visible, trans visibility is a double-edged sword, of course, but sure is. as much as it's important, you know, to be able to go to the bookstore and buy a book with two boys kissing on the cover, for instance, I think there's something to be said also for this kind of under the radar representation. There is. Where you could get super into little women and your parents could have no idea why. <laughs> oh, it's, it's fantastic. She's just really enjoying the classics and feminism. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's terrific. Elle, where can people find you online? Is there anything you'd like to promote? 
I can be found online at L underscore of the ball. Bell of the ball, but without the B and with an E at the end. That should be it as far as I can tell. Or I think I can be found at lgrenier.com, which is my website. It has been such a pleasure to have you and your delightful kitty cat who is um, in your lap right now. <laughs> it has been a real joy. I am so glad that I could be here with you at the start of your little women journey. I mean, feel free to live blog it in my DMs <laughs> as you go on, if you choose to go on. I might have to when I get the chance to go on. I might just show yeah. up in your DMs, just buzz buzz. Here's my latest little women take. Trust me, there are more jaw-dropping tea for tea moments, for sure. I am your host, Peyton Thomas. I can be found online at twitter.com slash Peytonology or peytonthomas.ca. I will also be appearing at the LA Times Festival of Books on April 23rd. So go to latimes.com slash FOB for more information. See you next week when we have a very special episode featuring, and we are going deep on the issue of Lori and uh, the Italian-American experience. All right, thanks so much.